I've been encouraged this morning already to, to be with you, um, and I appreciate all of your participation in our song service. That's been an encouragement to my heart, um, and I, I ask that you continue to participate um, in prayer and in thoughtfulness um, as we turn to God's Word this morning. I'd like us to uh, turn to Revelation, the 18th chapter. We're going to catch several, at least to me, really fascinating phrases in Revelation 18 and verse 23, where, I, where John, in, in the vision that Revelation encapsulates, is detailing some of the circumstances surrounding the last times, the last days. And John says in verse 23, or rather John's recording what is said, the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations Deceived. These are all conditions that are occurring during the last times, as, as we might qualify them. And it's reasonable to say that, that the, this last age that John's describing, the, the pageantry that's playing out in the vision of John, describes the age that we're in. Just the age following, the centuries following the return of Jesus Christ from earth to heaven until he returned from the final time. So what I want to claim to you this morning is that the circumstances that we're reading about in these verses characterize the times that we're now in. They couldn't be more relevant uh, to where we are this morning and the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And I want to make note of four of the phrases in this verse. First, we read that the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall be heard no more. Say, brother, what does that mean? Well, there's less divine communication. There's less communication from God to human beings. You remember this time was prophesied of during the days of Israel when there's 400 years that there's not, uh, there's not any message communicated from heaven. And so part of the prophecy of John is that in the last age, there's going to be less wisdom communicated from above to people. The times are going to be dark. People aren't really going to understand what God means when He communicates His precepts through His Word. It's going to be a time when the voice of the bridegroom and the bride are heard no more. Remember, that's an image that represents the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church, the bride and the bridegroom. That in this last age, we're in a time of darkness where people don't really understand and don't really hear what the Lord would have them to know. And, you know, we'll notice that the, the final phrase of this verse is, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. That there's a sense in which there's a widespread delusionment. There's a, there's a widespread deception occurring in the world. Now, I do my best not to, to present a topic like this as a type of conspiracy theory. 
as a type of a political agenda, but I, th- I think we can look at this and realize that in the world today, there's a lot of widespread misconceptions, a lot of widespread deceit that many people are suffering from. And so this verse in Revelation helps us begin to understand why are people so deceived? Do you ever ask yourself that question? Why are people so deceived? Why are we observing this, these widespread misconceptions and these raging lies that so many people latch onto in our current age? I believe we can all say that we see that this morning. And again, if, if you're a little bit skeptical of what I'm presenting to you now, we can talk after service and I'll be glad to share some specific examples of widespread lies that many people have latched onto. And I assure you today, Scripture and the Gospel is not about spreading deception. It's not about latching onto lies that make our lives miserable. It's about living in truth. God is keenly interested. He's interested in you as a son or daughter that He loves. And He's interested in you so greatly that He's given you His Word so that we might live not in lies, not in deception, but in truth. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is truth. And He's fundamental and interested in His people, not in living by lies, not in living in deceit, but living in truth. So what I want to do this morning for the time that we have together is think about this word sorcery and deception. You know, when I think of the word sorcery, I think of wizardry or you know, maybe some story that we read as, as little guys where a story is being told of, of some wizard or some magic creature, you know, that's living in a fairy tale. I'll think about, for an old example, might be uh, the grim fairy tales. You know, stories that have resonated for th- hundreds of years, and people have read them over and over and over again, and they're stories about magic. That's not quite what Scripture is referring to here, is what I want to present to you this morning. This widespread deception that we're reading about is a bit different. I want to read an example of what John is speaking of in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. And I encourage you to turn there with me if you have your Bibles. This is a bit lengthier passage that I want to read to you. But we read that, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So the disciples of Jesus Christ are fulfilling God's command to spread the gospel. And they're spreading the gospel rampantly. I mean, it's, it's spread, the gospel in this age spread faster than nearly any other religious set of beliefs that have been observed in human history. It's spreading incredibly fast. And we read that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. So Philip, in the course of his duties, decides that I'm going to go to the city of Samaria and I'm going to preach Christ to the people of Samaria. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So Philip doesn't only go preaching, he doesn't only go proclaiming the Word of God, he also goes and he starts performing miracles. 
Now, miracles at this time were an instrument that God allowed people to use to help illustrate the power of his gospel to the world. So as Philip's going into the city, he's performing these miracles. And we read in verse 7 what these miracles were. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many were taken with palsies, and that were lame were healed. So Philip's going about in the city of Samaria, and he's healing those that he comes across that are, that are stricken with illnesses, that can't walk, that are possessed by these unclean spirits. And there was great joy in that city. The city of Samaria hasn't seen anything like this before. And Philip's coming to their midst. He's preaching the gospel. He's proclaiming the work of Jesus Christ and the personhood of Jesus Christ. And he's healing those that are sick. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of capital G, God. So there's, a, there's this man named Simon who's practicing what, what uh, Luke qualifies as sorcery here in the book of Acts. And the way that he's deceiving the people of Samaria is he's imitating the miracles of Philip. And so people are looking at this man called Simon and they conclude, oh, this man is from God. Not just a little G God, not a plurality of little G gods, but a capital G God. They conclude this man is sent from the same God who's given Philip power and who has inspired Philip to preach the gospel in the city of Samaria. These people are completely deceived. And they've all bought into this lie that this guy Simon, who's actually a sorcerer, who's actually a cheap conjurer of tricks, who's a magician, he is sent from God. And you say, how was Simon doing this? Well, if we look at the history of this time, Simon was probably practicing modern medicine and just telling people, hey, I'm healing these people, and it's not, in fact, the medicines that I'm giving them. It's not the knowledge of the human body that I have. God is giving me the power to do these things. And he is fully deceived. Did you note that? The entire city of Samaria, from the least to the greatest, that he is indeed sent from God. And this is the type of sorcery that seems to characterize the New Testament. And here's what sorcery seems to be in the New Testament. It's the imitation of the power of God. It's taking something that God has caused and done in his own power and ascribing it to human ability. So Philip's going about the city of Samaria and he's healing people in the power of God. He's performing these miraculous acts. And then this guy, Simon, says, I'm going to imitate God's power. I'm going to imitate these works of Philip. And I'm going to claim that they are indeed my own. You know, so the people of Samaria conclude that, oh, this is a great man of God. This is a great man of God. When in fact, Simon, he's just using his own cunning, his own deception 
to deceive people into believing that he's sent by God. You know, there was, there was a, an account of a magician that was similar to Simon during his time that convinced a city in Central Asia that he could fly. He convinced a city in Central Asia that he could fly. And so the way that he did that is he used a boom, a big beam, and a cable to imitate flying in front of the entire city. And so the entire city at this time is deceived into believing that this magician, he can fly. Again, this is recorded in history. I'll be glad to share those sources with you. It's a fascinating story. And it works great until this magician decides, well, I'm going to put on this this big play in front of the kings of the day. And he straps himself to his cable and his cable breaks. And he falls to the ground, and his, his, his cheap imitation is exposed, and somehow that entire city concludes, oh, this man, he was just a magician. He was just imitating this power that he said came from Zeus, one of the Greek gods of that time. And so, you know, Paul's really concerned, even in the book of Galatians, we're going to turn there now, with this, with this imitation of God's power. It doesn't always manifest itself in the same way. You know, we're not observing sorcerers like Simon here in this day and age. But Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations. So Paul's interested in, in this account of, of the imitation of God's power, these cheap conjurers and these tricksters, people like Simon, people like the man who deceived the city in Central Asia into thinking that he could fly. He's concerned with those types of people because they seem to have the ability to cause massive groups of people to believe in lies. And it is that type of deception characterizes the end times. You know, the word sorcery is really used only a handful of times in the New and Old Testament. It's really used four out of the five times that it's used. It's used in reference to prophecies relating to the final age. So the Lord says, prior to my coming, large groups of people are going to be deceived by ridiculous lies. And so Paul, again, as Jesus Christ is, is keenly interested in the Galatian church not living according to these lies, not living according to these cheap imitations of God's power, but living according to truth. You say, brother, I have never seen someone trying to imitate a Greek god by flying through the air. I'm going to claim to you today that that sorcery manifests itself differently. It manifests itself differently. It's not always a manifestation in these cheap conjuring and tricks, you know, the imitation of, of modern medicine, trying to fool people into believing that you can fly, as humorous as that is. People also try to imitate God's power in a variety of other ways. They try to take something that we should give God full glory for, and ascribe that to the power of human beings. We've done it over and over and over again. I want to provide 
two examples of this if we have time, beginning in Romans chapter 1, of a group of people who imitate the power of God, who shamelessly imitate the power of God and accredit that to their own cunning, their own knowledge. Again, Romans chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Verse 20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they, that is these men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, are without excuse. Now listen carefully. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination and their foolish heart was darkened. Here's how we can understand this passage this morning. There's a group of people here that Paul's talking about who know God. They know God. And yet, they have refused to acknowledge God as who He is. Specifically in the context of creation. Did you notice that? That we're dealing with the creation here? The invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. I hope we can look at God's creation and we can witness His glory in that. If, if you're a disciple of Christ and you don't look out at nature and just attribute and observe the glory of God in His creation, let's spend some time together. I want you to spend some time with me because there are some miraculous sights, even in the state of Alabama, that we can go view that just speak and testify of God's creativity and glory. And so there's a group of people that look at the natural creation of God and they refuse to acknowledge God as creator. They're not thankful. They're not thankful for the world that God's placed us in. They don't glorify God as God, but they become vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart is darkened. You say, brother, what in this context does it mean to become vain in one's imaginations? Well, people start imagining alternative explanations for the creation of the world other than God. People start acknowledging explanations for creation other than a divine God who somehow and for some reason decides to create the world in which we live by the word of his power. And again, I want to reemphasize These people, for whatever reason, seem to understand God as creator. The God that we read about in Genesis chapter 1 who creates the world, not from something really small, but from nothing. Who speaks the world into existence. They understand that. And yet they refuse to glorify God as God. And I assure you today... God, forgive me if I'm presenting this in some sort of biased, partisan, or ununderstandable way, but there are people in the world that are interested 
in all of us acknowledging alternative explanations for the creation of the world that don't relate to God. You know, within the framework of Scripture, Scripture commands us to believe that God creates the world by faith. To believe that God spoke the world into existence. You say, brother, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. Me too. I do as well. It's a hard thing to understand. That's why Hebrews, the 11th chapter, tells us that it's by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Faith is the primary way that we understand this principle. And yet, there are people here in Romans chapter 1 that are the cheap conjurers of tricks that are trying to convince the known world that, oh, we can conjure an alternative explanation for the creation of the world that doesn't direct glory heavenward. This is the same type of mentality that Simon is practicing in Acts chapter 8. He takes something that we should be attributing glory to God for, and he says, oh, I've indeed done this. This is of my own creativity and ingenuity. You know, another example that we can read of, uh, of this is back in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, where Paul is dealing with lies that have been spread in the Galatian church. Where there are heretics, there are deceptive prophets in the midst of the Galatian church that are trying to convince the Galatian church that they're not saved by the sovereign act of God, but by the works of the law. They indeed are saved by the works of the law and the things that they would perform before God, not His sovereign act of salvation. And so Paul encourages them in uh, Galatians 5 and 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. I encourage you to go read the book of Galatians in its entirety. But Paul was looking at the Galatian church, and he observed members of that church who were ensnared in a yoke of bondage. And what was that yoke of bondage? Well, these prophets were trying to claim to the Galatian church that, oh, you're saved by the works of the law. Again, not the sovereign act of God. And Paul is encouraging them, don't be ensnared by that lie. You know, we as human beings, we, we are interested in attributing glory to ourselves. We're all interested in bolstering our reputations, are we not? We're all interested in presenting an image to the world that's often not an adequate representation of what's in our heart. We're interested in doing that. And so this group, the Galatian church, these people that are lying to the Galatian church, are interested in attributing the glory of salvation to man when it should be attributable to the glory of God. Salvation and the creation of the world are events to which we owe God the glory. And yet, there, there are these two circumstances in Scripture where the Galatian church and also the Roman church are being convinced of these events that you see, the creation of the world, the salvation of God's elect people. We don't owe God the glory for that. It's a, it's a matter of something that we have done. And I, I would claim to you this morning that Scripture qualifies that as a type of deceptive sorcery. 
where people are just imitating the power of God, where they go into a city like Samaria and they state, oh, indeed, we don't owe the glory of salvation to God. It's related to something that we've accomplished. Oh, we don't owe God the glory for creation. Creation isn't something that displays God's majesty. It's the result of a bunch of random cataclysmic events that we can't even develop a robust scientific theory for when in fact we ought to be glorying God by faith for His creation of the world in which we live. You know, in a characterization of the last times, as we draw our thoughts to a close this morning, is that people will believe these lies. That they're going to start buying into these untruths that, that men that were present in the Galatian church, men and women that were present in the book of Romans, are, are, are going to start espousing and communicating to the world. And part of the reason the Roman church was studying with the lie that God didn't create the world and we're not going to be thankful for Him, we're not going to glorify Him as Creator, is because they were at the epicenter of ancient scientific knowledge. The, the development of science is occurring during their time and there are people going around claiming to them that God didn't indeed create the world. You know, again, our, our God is so gracious. The God of Scripture is so gracious and loving. And he's interested in us living not in lies, not in deception, not in cheap tricks, but in truth. And so I pray God would give us the discernment to look for truth and to examine, examine the claims that many would make. Examine the claims of science. Examine, examine the claims of men like Simon, you know, as the second return of the Lord Jesus Christ goes closer. I uh, thank you for your attention this morning.